Thank you, Natalie. I appreciate it. No, I don't speak like that at all. <laughs> I do not sound like Foghorn Leghorn. Okay. So thank you guys for coming. Uh, my goals today are to try and show you what the clinical features of PCD are because we've really only discovered it in about the last 10 years. Explain the diagnostic difficulties behind PCD and hopefully show you guys that you've probably seen it and didn't realize it already. And then discuss some of the long-term clinical issues faced by patients. So in order to understand PCD, you have, you have to understand basic respiratory physiology. And what I mean is that basically all of the airways from the posterior part of, just looking for my mouse, the posterior part of the uh, inferior turbinate down to the terminal bronchioles are lined with ciliated epithelium, floating in airway surface liquid with a mucus layer on top. And anything you breathe in gets stuck in that mucus layer, debris, dust, viruses, the cilia beat, clear it up and you swallow that about 10 times a day. So it's a very, very elegant system composed of many, many different proteins. And the respiratory cilia, which you probably remember from one day in embryology and thought you'd never ever see this again, it's back. Uh, there's 200 cilia on each ciliated epithelial cell in the respiratory system. And you, there's this classic nine plus two configuration with nine outer doublets surrounding a central pair. There's outer dynein arms, inner dynein arms, radial spokes, and a neck and link. And so when the cilia work together, this is an example of normal cilia, you can see they beat in unison. You can kind of see there's a wave going across and you even see a little piece of debris that gets flicked away here. And these are cells that have been removed from someone's nose to look at under a regular light microscope. And the other thing that's very interesting about these cilia is they are smart. They have planar cell polarity, meaning they know their right from their left and they actually line up so that no matter where the cilia are on the plate, these latex beads we put on top get transported in one direction down to the lower left-hand corner. So it's a very intelligent system with very intelligent cells and fun videos as well. So what is PCD or primary ciliary dyskinesia? So it's a defect in the mucus clearance from the upper and lower airways. And this is from a primary origin, meaning genetic. Everyone in this room will have secondary ciliary dyskinesia tomorrow when you go outside to shovel your snow in minus 20 weather. When your nose starts to drip, that's because the cilia are paralyzed by the cold. So you will have secondary ciliary dyskinesia. But the cilia aren't stiff and completely paralyzed. They're actually dysmotile. They move, but they don't move in that wonderful, smooth wave that we want. And because of this, the mucus sits. And when the mucus sits, you start to get infection and then inflammation, and then obstruction, this circle of death that we see in many other respiratory illnesses. The beauty of PCD is the cough clearance is still intact. The mucus isn't sticky, it isn't stuck, and when they cough, it's really gross. They can bring up cupfuls of mucus, but it's actually quite helpful in treating the disease. So what happens to children with this? Well, they all get severe hearing and speech impairment from chronic otitis media with effusions in their ears. Even if they haven't had acute otitis media, they all have chronic effusions. And this gives them a very poor quality of life. In addition to their ears, their noses are congested every single day of their life from birth. So imagine your child, if you have children in the room, imagine, and not the residents, if you have your own children, I mean. <laughs> Imagine the worst head cold of your child's life, up coughing till they're vomiting, choking on secretions every night. Now imagine that every day of their life, and that's what these kids deal with. And in fact, when you think about the cousin disease that we compare this to, cystic fibrosis, cystic fibrosis, aside from the pancreatic issues and growth issues, is fairly quiet from a respiratory standpoint in the first few years of life, whereas PCD is not. 
and the quality of life gets worse because it takes a long time to get them diagnosed. And eventually you go into on, you get you get ongoing lung damage with chronic bronchitis, pneumonias, and eventually bronchiectasis, which is an irreversible dilatation of the airways. You get respiratory failure, death, or transplant in some cases. And until recently, we were really lacking good longitudinal data to say, well, how many of these people do go on to bronchiectasis, death, transplant? And we're just starting to get an idea of that now. So it's mainly an autosomal recessive disease with a prevalence of 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 30,000. It's probably more around the 1 in 10 to 1 in 15,000, actually. And if you think about that, including Canada, the United States, and Mexico, there's 50,000 cases in North America. So it's not that rare, actually. But only a, less than 1,000 have been definitively diagnosed. And when you start to look at good uh, um, consanguinous populations, for instance, the Pakistani population in Great Britain, it's one in 2,000. That's as common as cystic fibrosis. So depending on where you look and if you know how to look, this is very, very common. And this isn't a disease of the predominantly white child like CF, all races, all cultures, crosses borders. And it's really not that rare. If you look at some of these other diseases that are one in 10,000, Ehlers-Danlos, SMA, Rett syndrome, hemophilia, these are all running around your hospital. You all follow some of these, you've seen them. But the thing is, these have distinctive phenotypes, whereas PCD looks like daycareitis, and that's the big problem. It looks like every other kid with recurrent viral infections until you, until you start to dig deeper. It also looks a lot like CF, it looks a lot like immune deficiency, asthma, chronic aspiration, severe rhinitis, so these kids get told, go away, you're fine, when in reality they're not. So in order to answer these questions, what actually helps you diagnose a kid with PCD? When I was in my training in North Carolina, I was lucky enough to be part of the GDMCC, or the Genetic Diseases of Mucociliary Clearance Consortium. It's a mouthful. And basically what we did was we had over 1,000 patients, adult and pediatric, come from all over the country, referred to us for either highly suspected PCD or a pre-existing diagnosis of PCD. And we looked at them in a cross-sectional fashion to see what exactly helps us diagnose this disease. And what we found was that all of the symptoms start early, often before six months of age even. This does not wait till you're three or four and start. This does not wait till you're 20 and you start smoking cigarettes. 99% of them have daily, year-round, wet cough. And you have to say it just like that, okay? It's not, do you cough? It's every single day, okay? 97% daily, year-round nasal congestion. Recurrent otitis median effusion and recurrent pneumonia and bronchitis are very, very prominent. Neonatal respiratory distress is something we found out. Why do these kids have neonatal respiratory distress? Well, we'll get into it a little. Um, situs inversus totalis, that's SIT, or some type of other situs anomaly was new to us. And when you start to get into the adults, they mainly present with sinusitis, bronchiectasis, and male infertility. So going into the neonatal course a little close, more closely, since we're all, most of us are pediatricians in the room, um, there was a wonderful retrospective case control study out of Toronto where they looked at 46 children with PCD and went back and tracked down all their neonatal records and all their neonatal x-rays and compared them against healthy con uh, controls that needed x-rays in the NICU, transient tachypnea of the newborn, neonatal pneumonia, meconium aspiration. <clears throat> and what you can see is that the onset of the respiratory distress is delayed in PCD at 12 hours versus all the disease controls, the neonatal respiratory stress started right away as soon as they popped out. The duration of oxygen need was extremely long. These are term births, okay, that needed oxygen for 15 days on average. Very bizarre, versus the controls that needed it for less than a day. 
And then many of them had lobar collapse on their x-ray, which is not very often seen in the neonatal respiratory unit. And so if you look here, this is the examples of lobar collapse. So they have, this is actually the right upper lobe because this patient has situs inversus totalis and the lingula. And you can see, it looks like a one-year-old kid with bronchi well, bronchiolitis, excuse me, not bronchiectasis, bronchiolitis. And in this study, if you had an oxygen need for greater than two days and or situs inversus and or lobar collapse, it was 96% specific for PCD. So what does that mean? It means all you neonatologists and residents in the neonatal units, when you see a kid that comes out with a situs anomaly and respiratory distress, unless the heart is badly affected, uh, that's PCD until proven otherwise. We have a larger study now of 72 PCD infants at four different sites, and we've shown that 72% of them have lobar atelectasis to go along with their distress. It's mostly the upper and middle lobes that are affected, but the other thing we found is 57% have a migratory atelectasis. So this is all the same patient, all these images. Day one, the left lung's hazy. Day two, the left lung's collapsed. Day three, it's the right upper lobe, and day four, there's some stuff in the right middle. And so now what we're trying to do is look at genotypes and phenotypes, and I'm going to explain the genes behind PCD to you to see if there are certain types that have worsened respiratory distress. So we've learned that bronchiectasis, which is that irreversible dilatation of the airways, actually affects the lower and middle lobes as opposed to the upper lobes in cystic fibrosis. And we have no idea why, but we know that a lot of children will have it if you look. This is an example of a CT scan of a child that told me they don't have any cough. And you can see the whole right middle lobe is collapsed and bronchiectatic. And this is an adult with advanced bronchiectasis. So 100% of adults have bronchiectasis. And then we started to learn more about the situs. So situs means how your organs are placed. And so there's situs solitus, where all your organs are in normal arrangement, heart and stomach on the left, liver on the right. There's situs inversus totalis, where everything in your body is a mirror image. And then there's anything in between called situs ambiguous. You can have two right everything, so two right atrium, two right lungs, a midline liver and asplenia. You can have a left atrial esophagus, two left lungs, two left um, uh, atria, and so you don't have a, you need a pacemaker because you don't have an SA node, and polysplenia, but you can also have everything in between. And this is very interesting. I've been talking about these cilia here, the respiratory cilia, but there's a second type of cilia in the human body, and it happens when you're an embryo. They're called embryonic nodal cilia. And if you notice, they have a 9 plus 0 configuration. They have outer and inner dining arms, but they don't have radial spokes or a central pair. And there's one of these on the embryonic nodal cell, and they whirl. And they tell your body how to break symmetry, because up until that point, at however many weeks of life, eight weeks of life, everything's symmetric. But something has to tell the body to do right, heart on the, heart on the left, liver on the right. That's what these do. And they actually propel fluid from the right to the left side of the embryo in direct laterality. Very smart. But you can imagine if you have an outer dining arm defect in your nodal cilia, it might not beat well and your organs will be misplaced. And you'll have a similar defect in your outer dining arms of your respiratory cilia, and that's what links these two diseases. So the problem is, you know, I'm a lung doctor, and I'm going to blame the cardiologist, but when the cardiologists get involved, it gets very, very difficult. Because what cardiologists do is they throw in the term heterotaxy. And to a cardiologist, this means very, very, very complex hearts with all these different lesions here, plus usually something in the abdomen, like polysplenia, asplenia. But we have many, many cases that don't follow what the cardiologists call heterotaxy. You can just have polysplenia and a flipped abdomen, and your heart can be completely normal. So there's a lot of laterality defects that don't fall nicely into the nomenclature that the cardiologists have made. 
And so when we look at a very, very well phenotyped PCD population, we were able to diagnose 305 that came to our consortium with definite PCD. You can see that some of them have, about half have situs solitus, which you'd expect, but less than half have situs inversus. And the reason is many of them have this in-between situs ambiguous. And that's when you start digging into their abdomens. And you can see some of them have classic heterotaxy that no cardiologist worth their salt would argue about, but then some of them just have an ASD or a big VSD or tetralogy of flow with their abdomen all scrambled. Some of them have completely normal hearts with just their abdomen scrambled, and some of them just have an interrupted IVC or just polysplenia. So they don't fit nicely into the nomenclature we've created mainly to describe heart disease. So I often try and lighten this up a bit because there's a lot of famous people in the world that have situs issues. So your job as the audience is to guess the star's situs. This is Enrique Iglesias. Some of you may date yourselves in the room by saying you know his father is Julio. So does he have situs solitus, situs inversus totalis, or situs ambiguous? Situs inversus totalis. As far as I know, he does not have PCD, but many of the nurses in my office have agreed to test him if he comes. So what about this guy, Sean White, big snowboarder, right? So he has what I'm calling situs ambiguous because he has tetralogy of Fallot. Now, this is the point in the, in the, in the uh, talk where a cardiologist stands up and walks out and says, this guy didn't know what he's talking about. Situs ambiguous, that's not tetralogy of Fallot. Well, when you take a mouse model of PCD and you knock out one of the most common genes in PCD, DNA H5, you knock out the mouse equivalent, about 40% of them get situs ambiguous. And the only heart lesion in many, many of those is Tetralogy of Fallot. But basically, any child with PCD has a 200-time increased risk for congenital heart disease. So don't forget to order that echocardiogram. So basically, what have we learned about the phenotype? I've shown you lots of fun things. I've shown you fun pictures. What helps you actually diagnose this disease? Well, this is the most important slide in the talk, okay? There are four key clinical hallmark symptoms that help you diagnose PCD from daycareitis. Number one, unexplained neonatal respiratory distress with supplemental oxygen need or CPAP for more than 24 hours despite term birth. Number two, early onset, meaning before six months, year-round wet cough. It doesn't go away for two months in the summer. It doesn't go away for two weeks in between colds. It may improve, but it's always there. Early onset, year-round nasal congestion from, again, before six months, and any organ laterality defect. If you have two of these symptoms, it's an 80% possibility you have PCD. If you have all four of those, it's 99% specific. Notice what's not there, bad ear infections. Notice what's not there, bad pneumonia bronchitis. Because so many kids have that, it doesn't help you differentiate. If you've never had an ear infection in your life and you have no middle ear effusions, it's unlikely you have PCD. But it doesn't work as well as these four clinical symptoms. So once you have identified the person you want to send for PCD testing, the problem is there's no gold standard test. There's many, many different ones, and I'm going to go through a few of them real quick. So there's a couple of deceased tests, the saccharin test, which some of you guys may remember. You put a dot of saccharin on the nose, and the cilia beat it back, and you ask the patient when they can taste it. It doesn't work so well in a five-year-old. Uh, mucociliary clearance testing is uh, the problem is you don't if the person has rhinovirus that day. You might not clear the radioisotope you put in their lungs, so you don't know if it's primary or secondary. Many sites I show up to across North America still have people that scrape the cilia out of the nose, look under a light microscope, and say, oh, they're moving, you don't have PCD. 
that's not true at all. And then some people just measure the speed of the cilia and say, oh, they're beating fast or they're beating slow. You do or you don't have it. All of these are forbidden. They lead to very, very bad false positive and false negative results. So electron microscopy used to be the gold standard of PCD diagnosis. And what we basically do, here's a normal EM with a nice hooked outer dynein arm. It looks like a comma, very easy to see. The inner dynein arms are a little harder to see, but they're there. And you have that nine plus two configuration with a nice central pair. Here's an example where you're missing the outer dynein arm. Actually quite easy to see that hooked comma is not there. Mm -hmm. Here's one where you're missing the outer and inner dining arms where the cilia just kind of look naked. And here's one where you have a central apparatus or radial spoke defect and everything's just jumbled up. And we thought we were doing good. We said we can diagnose PCD with this, no problem. Then someone started looking at those old English sheepdogs that drool and snot everywhere. Many of them have PCD with situs inversus due to inbreeding, the pure breeds. And they started looking at them and mice with heterotaxy, and they found some new genes, CCDC 39 and 40. But these genes can have remarkably normal EMs. Here's an example of only one little outer arm or outer doublet pushed in a bit. And here's an example of complete disorganization, but the problem is even within the same person, you have different cilia. So all the number ones here are normal. The twos are an eight plus four. The threes are an eight plus two. And so basically you have some cells that are normal, some cells that have microtubule disorganization, and there are, most of them are missing the inner dynein arms. And that is now showing us the limits of EM, because what do you do when you have a patient with some cilia that are normal and some that aren't? You say, I don't know, Maybe you had a virus. I don't know. We'll have to repeat this again. But they have real genetically proven disease. And now we know there's many, many forms of PCD proven with genetics and other testing that have completely normal electron microscopy. So the problem is our gold standard can be completely normal in 30% of PCD. And in many academic centers, inexperience with these gives false positive and false negative diagnoses. Because every pathologist thinks they can do this, but they can't and the processing and the tech are very, very difficult to do and take a lot of time. And in fact, one very prestigious center somewhere in New England can only get 60% of their samples to even work for analysis. 40% of their samples don't even have electron microscopy stuff to look at, see that to look at, and they've published this. So even with expert, expert testing, great pathologists, great tech, great biopsies, only 70% are gonna be positive, and it's a thousand bucks per study. And the scariest thing is in our big research consortium, people that came to us with diagnosis of PCD based on electron microscopy, when we repeated the electron microscopy, 20% were actually undiagnosed. Imagine if that was happening in, with your sweat test and cystic fibrosis. It's a disaster. So some more guess the star situs. Anyone know this first guy? He has situs solitus, but Dr. No has situs inversus totalis because in one of the books he gets shot in the chest. But since his heart's on the other side, he survives and comes back to try and kill James Bond in the next episode. What about this guy? Any, any love songs of the 70s fans? So Donny Osmond almost died of a ruptured appendicitis because it was on his left. And no one picked it up because he has situs inversus totalis. So in Europe, many of our colleagues have gone to what's called high-speed video microscopy, where they actually take cilia out of the nose and look at it under special high-speed video cameras under regular light microscopy that record at 400 frames per second. And they can watch the cilia beat by beat by beat, second by second, frame by frame, and see if there's abnormalities in the beat pattern. And this is what they claim in a normal beat you see this, nice amplitude. If you have an outer dining arm defect, there's not much beat at all. There's flickering or very discoordinated beat. 
Inner dining arm defects are a lot more difficult because they seem to beat well, but the amplitude is slightly decreased. And central apparatus or radial spoke defects look normal from the side, but when you look from the top, they're actually whirling. So it's quite difficult, okay? And so here's an example of a ciliated epithelial cell mass that's been scraped from someone's nose. And you can see that some of them seem to be beating pretty darn well. Other places it's not beating at all, it's stagnant. This patient has proven DNAH5 mutations with an outer dining arm defect on the electron microscopy. So the problem is you've scraped this out of someone's nose. How do you know the cells are still viable? How do you know this beat is not being affected by scraping it out of its natural environment? How do you know there's not a virus causing this as well? And that's one of the biggest problems. Can you make a life-changing decision based on this and, and give them a diagnosis and doom them to daily therapies and lots of antibiotics when they might just have decaritis? Here's another example of DYX1C1 mutations. And you can see some of these look like they're beating really fast and they're beating nice and coordinated and other spots are just dead, not beating at all. So again, can you make the diagnosis based on that? An example of DNAH11 mutations. These guys have a hyperkinetic ciliary beat. And this is an example of why just looking at how fast they beat doesn't tell you if they're normal or abnormal. These have a high-speed fibrillation. And here's an example of RSPH1 mutations. And if you look, especially up here in the corner, you can see the circular beat from above. You can kind of appreciate it. It's like one of those 3D posters. You have to stare at it for a few minutes. But I won't let you stare at it for a few minutes. So the problem with high-speed video microscopy is it's a very, very high learning curve. You need to have done a fellowship in this at one of the few sites in the United Kingdom to really convince me that you know how to do this. There's very lengthy preparation time. You've got to scrape those cells out of the nose and film them for many, many, many minutes and then review all that video and come up with a unified diagnosis. There's no automated system for interpretation. And even one nice study done out of Vancouver shows even inter-rater agreement between healthy control samples, when they're blinded, they don't know their healthy controls, the inter-rater agreement is extremely poor. No one can agree even what normals are. So what they do in small countries like Belgium is they have you come back three times over three months and get a biopsy each time and look and make sure the beat pattern is the same each time because you could have had a virus the first time. That's easy to do when your country is two hours wide. It's hard to do when you're strewn out all across North America. And the other thing they do is they're regrowing at an air-liquid interface for weeks on end to try and get rid of the secondary issues like viruses and things like that. But that's very hard to do in a clinical setting to do cellular regrowth. So this is not routinely done in North America. And in fact, the evidence in the recent ATS guidelines are, are against using this. Any basketball fans? This guy played for the Clippers, the Nets. He just, gra he just graduated, he just retired in 2017. Randy Foy, Citus versus Totalis. So, Someone discovered in 1994 that nasal nitric oxide is extremely low in PCD, and nobody knows why. The mechanism remains unknown, but it's very, very low, often less than 50 nanoliters per minute, whereas controls are well above two to 300 nanoliters per minute. It's a really nice screening test, and now it's been proven to be a diagnostic test. It's non-invasive. It's rapid, as long as a spirometry takes, even quicker, honestly. It's inexpensive for the patients once the hospital invests in a expensive machine, and the results are immediate. You don't have to wait three weeks for a lab report to come back. And basically, this is my five-year-old daughter doing it. You put a little spongy olive in the nose that's gently sucking out nitric oxide, and you get the patient to blow into a resistor to close their vellum because you don't want air from your lungs diluting the nasal sample. You just want the nasal sample. And you get them to blow until they reach a plateau. You get two three-second plateaus in each nair, and you're done. 
If it's an uncooperative child, you can do tidal breathing techniques and you get five tidal peaks with the child just breathing normally. And this was evaluated in over 200 PCDs plus similar numbers of healthy and disease controls. And a cutoff was established less than 77 nanoliters per minute for PCD. And then this cutoff was prospectively used for 155 consecutive referrals to rule out PCD at six different centers across North America. And the NO was below 77 in 70 of the 71 PCDs. That equals a sensitivity of 98% and a specificity of greater than 99%. If we had more non-invasive rapid tests like this, we would all be out of a job, okay? But we don't, but this works really, really well. There are some problems with nasal nitric oxide. It's more reliable when you have someone over age five that can blow into a resistor. There's no real published cutoffs for kids age two to five doing it with tidal breathing, but they're coming soon. And you can't use it below two years of age. As you see below two years of age, the healthy controls and the PCD start to merge here. But after two years of age, there's a nice separation and we will be publishing nasal NO cutoffs for tidal breathing very soon. There's other problems with nasal NO. The chemiluminescent devices that you need to use are not FDA approved or Health Canada approved. I don't know what the regulatory agencies in Mexico do. Uh, and we're lacking disease controls for everyone. So we know about a third of cystic fibrosis can have nasal NO levels below the cutoff, but you need a sweat test in these kids regardless, so you're gonna get it, okay? And it's low in some other diseases, diffuse panbronchiolitis, which is a disease of 40-year-old Asian females, some transplant medications, but funny enough, we've tested this in a lot of people with primary immunodeficiency at the Montreal Children's, and it discriminates very well. They do not have low NO values, which the three things this disease really looks like are CF, primary immunodeficiency, and PCD. It tends to rule out at least primary immunodeficiency. You have to be free from a virus for about two weeks, which is really hard when you have the snottiest three-year-old in the world. And sometimes they say, come back and see me in July. This just this isn't working now. And the operators have to be trained. This is not a standalone device that you can just say, go for it to your respiratory technicians. So what about genetics? Everyone said genetics was gonna save the world, right? And it's done a lot for PCD. In 2007, when I started this, there were nine PCD genes, and now there's 42 different genes causing this disease. That's more than 700 coding exons, and we think that'll pick up roughly 70% of PCD. This makes cystic fibrosis genetics look easy, and as a pulmonologist, that's what I understand, cystic fibrosis genetics. And when you look at this, CFTR, the cystic fibrosis gene, is 27 exons. It looks easy compared to all the exons you have to pick up for all these PCD genes. So what we know is about 90% of these are autosomal recessive, 7% are X-linked. And if you look at how they're grouped here, it's per what their electron microscopy defect is. We have some that cause outer dining arm defects. We have some that cause oligocilia. You keep scraping the poor kid's nose and you see no cilia, but in fact there's one cilia and it beats normally. It has trouble multiplying into the 200 per cell. We have some very rare, rare X-linked uh, um, uh, syndromic ones. We have a lot that, are, that uh, produce inner dining arm and outer dining arm defects. These produce microtubule organization, but this is the big problem here. Look at all these genes we're now finding with exome sequencing that result in normal electron microscopy. And so the other key with this is unlike cystic fibrosis, two disease-causing mutations do not equal PCD. 
in cystic fibrosis, we diagnose with a sweat test. And then we send off the genes, and the genes come back, and we see two disease-causing mutations, and we say, okay, those are probably the cause. You can't do that in this. They have to be two in the same gene. You can't have one hit in DNAH11 and one hit in RSPH1, because you can still make 50% of those proteins. You need both in the same gene, okay? You have to have one from each parent in trans, okay? In CF, we don't check for that, because we've already diagnosed the kids based on sweat tests, okay? In this disease, if you don't have any other positive tests, you better make sure that both of those are not inherited from one parent in cis because it's not disease-causing. And then with so many different genes and so many exons, you often get one variant that's causing disease and one variant that's of unknown significance. And people love to say, oh, well, we'll just consider that disease-causing. No, you can't do that, okay? So you really, really need genetic support for this disease. I don't know many pulmonologists that can do this on their own. Okay. Overall, one study out of Toronto showed that 57% were diagnosed on EM alone. And then once you added deletion duplication and a, a 32 gene panel, 76%. So right there, by ticking a box and drawing some blood, you already have a higher yield than electron microscopy. Commercial testing is available throughout North America. Some of it's very cheap. One company in San Francisco will do it for $250 if you're uninsured. And you can include cystic fibrosis sequencing on there as well for free, which is quite helpful. All right, so these are Canadian stars. Does anyone know them? Anyone? So Eugene Levy, Cytus solitus, Catherine O'Hara, Cytus inversus totalis. So you commonly require several different tests for a PCD diagnosis, and each of them has their drawbacks that I've gone into. Nasal and O is great. It can be very rarely normal, which I'm going to show you, but it's better in people less than five years of age. EM, not so good, especially in untrained hands. High-speed video microscopy, full of false positive and false negatives if you don't know what you're doing. And genes, you can't detect everything. Immunofluorescence, I'm not going to talk about. It's not used in many centers. So these are the American Thoracic Society guidelines that were just published earlier this year. And basically what you need to do with this disease, if you have two of the four key clinical features that I talked about before, rest distress at birth, year-round daily cough from an early age, year-round daily nasal congestion from an early age, or any organ laterality defect, you should move on to nasal and O testing if you have access to a machine and a place that knows how to use it, which I'm hoping this place will be. If you don't have any of those, if you only have one of those symptoms or none, you really shouldn't excuse me, test for PCD right away. You might come back to it later, but it's not going to be your first line testing. And if you don't have access to chemiluminescence technology for NO, you should have an extended gene panel. And as you go down, if the nasal nitric oxide is low and you repeat it again and it's low at least two weeks later, you have a diagnosis of PCD. I still want you to go on to EM and genetics because we need to know more about this disease. Imagine if we'd stopped testing cystic fibrosis genes 40 years ago because we had a sweat test. Well, we wouldn't have all these wonder drugs that are gene-specific right now, or excuse me, protein-specific right now. The extended genetic panel, this is where you're going to need help from your, from your uh, geneticist because you're going to get confusing variants and you might have to go on to electron microscopy or even send them to a CF uh, PCD center that has NO if your center doesn't. So it all sounds good in practice, but then we start to find variant forms, just like we did in CF. And so this is a gene called RSPH1 that has about 85 to 90% normal electron microscopy, various little 1 in 20 or 1 in 10 can have various little things that you see here, but overall very normal. And when we start to look at the nasal nitric oxide and the yellow boxes, you can see a good proportion of them actually come above that 77 nanoliters per minute cutoff. 
Not all, but some, and many of them are still in a level that's low enough that I would never say, go home, you don't have PCD, because you could still have it. But look at this guy up here at like 400, very concerning. So overall, the mean nasal nitric oxide in these people is 98 nanoliters per minute. And in addition to those higher values, less of them had rest distress at birth. The cough came on after one year of age in some of them, and they all had better lung function, but they all had bronchiectasis. And you can see their cilia here are a whirling motion like you would expect with a radial spoke defect. Anyone know this? Guess the situs. So Honey Boo Boo is situs solitus, but her dad is situs inversus totalis. I believe in one episode he gets in a lawnmower accident and goes to the hospital and gets an x-ray and comes back and says, they done told me my heart's on the wrong side. As a southerner, I'm allowed to make that joke. None of you can. <laughs> so what does the future hold for people with PCD now that we finally think we know how to diagnose it? So the only longitudinal data we had was a little old, about a decade old, and it was out of Denmark where all of the patients in the country are followed at one center. And they followed 74 of them over 10 years, did standard kind of PCD therapies with chest clinic visits, sputum induction for culture, airway clearance, antibiotics when they needed it. And they found that despite all that, about a third still lost values in their FEV1. About two thirds had stable FEV1, 10% even improved, okay? But this was, it was longitudinal data, but not prospective. It was more retrospective longitudinal. Recently, we've had a very nice study come out of our North American consortium that was a prospective longitudinal study with over 700 visits over five years. And what we're starting to see now are the genotype-phenotype correlations. So now we know that if you have the inner dining arm microtubule disorganization gene, uh, excuse me, EM, the one that the snotty sheepdogs have, or the CCDC39 or 40 mutations, you're much worse clinically than all other kinds of PCD. They have a younger age of diagnosis, so they present earlier because they're sicker. They have a lower FEV1 and body mass index, even though there's no pancreatic insufficiency in these kids, like in cystic fibrosis. And their decline over time is faster in their FEV1 than people just with outer dining arm defects. And you can see, here's their nutritional information here. It's quite striking. Whether that's due to their chest disease burden or something else, we have no idea. But there are no known gastrointestinal effects of PCD at this time. So the evidence-based therapies in PCD, you're looking at them. That's it. Nothing. We have absolutely nothing. Everything we have has been borrowed from cystic fibrosis. But just like an ID doctor says, if there's an, if there's an infection, give them an antibiotic. If there's an abscess, drain it. Well, we kind of do the same in the lungs. So we have published consensus statement guidelines from many, many doctors that talk about routine airway clearance, antibiotics when you need it, prophylactic antibiotics, inhaled antibiotics, things like that that just make sense. Get the infection out. But it's, it's shameful that we have nothing specific, although two clinical trials have just wrapped up on this disease, and we may have specific therapies soon. But this is what we're really getting at. We are where the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was 30, 40 years ago. We finally know how to diagnose the disease. We have our sweat test, we, which is a combination of different tests. We can pick up most forms of this disease, and now we need reliable centers everywhere. So this is our Genetic Diseases of Mucociliary Clearance Consortium. And this is the PCD Foundation Clinical Network. So every place where you see a little 
a mascot. That's a place we've actually certified to be a PCD center. And every place you just see text, but no mascot, those are places that have applied to be a PCD center. And we want you guys to be a PCD center because until we can provide reliable diagnostics in every state across the country, we cannot start to actually figure out how to treat this disease on an evidence-based method. So, in summary, the classic PCD phenotype includes neonatal respiratory stress, daily cough and nasal congestion from birth normally, and any organ situs anomaly. No single test will detect all cases, okay, but nasal NO and genes are the first line tests in North America, not in Europe, but here they are. Uh, and if you don't know what you're doing or you think you have one of these kids, send them to someone who knows what they're doing. And I want this site to be someone that knows what they're doing. They already do know what they're doing, but they need the right equipment, okay? And then recognize that PCD patients with certain genotypes may have worse phenotypes and you may need to treat them more aggressively, but we don't know yet. So these are all the people from the GDMCC. Mike Knowles is the PI. Margaret Lee and Stephanie Davis, who are both in North Carolina now, were my mentors and the rest of the group. And I could not have done any of this without all these people. They've made me into the man I am today. So thank you guys very much. Any questions?